Howdy and welcome to the 10-week Bible study. This is week three, day one of our study of Acts. I'm your host, Darren Hibbs, and today we're talking about Acts 6, 1 through 15. Welcome back to the 10-week Bible study. Again, I'm your host, Darren Hibbs. Before we get started, I want to encourage you again to remember to read the book of Acts once a week for the 10 weeks that we're going through this. It really will transform how you engage with God's word. It will transform just your relationship with God in general. When you get God's word in you like that, you start to dialogue with him. You start to meditate on God's word on accident. That's what David says in Psalm 1. It's what we're after. The, those who meditate on God's word day and night, like trees planted by streams of living water, they're the ones counted in the courts of the righteous. That's what we want. So I encourage you, read his word 10 times in the next 10 weeks. With that, let's pray before we start today. Lord, would you open our eyes and our ears to hear what your word has to say to us, God. Speak to us and fill our hearts with the knowledge of you. Fascinate us with your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. With that, let's jump into God's word reading today from the NIV. This is Acts 6, starting in verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, remember back to week one when we talked about the distinction, the five different types of people in the Jews' minds was, number one, you have just Jews or God-fearing Jews. In this case, they're making the distinction they're calling Hebraic Jews, meaning they, they live in Israel, Right. They're Hebrew Jews. They're Hebrew-speaking or really Aramaic-speaking Jews. Um, and the Hellenistic Jews are the ones that are from the diaspora. They're the, the ones who, they didn't speak Hebrew or Aramaic natively. They can speak it, but it's not their native tongue. They speak Greek. They speak Arab or you know whatever the ancient languages were of, of these locations, North Africa, Turkey, all these places, uh, what, what we consider modern-day Turkey. And so there's a, a complaint going on here saying that the Hellenistic Jews are saying they're, they're being treated like second-class citizens. And to some extent, the Hellenistic Jews that lived in Israel, they were treated like second-class citizens amongst the Jews, right? If you were Jewish, but you couldn't natively speak Hebrew Aramaic, they actually were treated as second-class citizens to some extent. And so this is a you know, this might actually be a prejudice, a real prejudice that's going on. This might actually be something that's actually happening because it was so cultural for them to carry this over. Or it could just be something that they they feel like they're superimposing on the Hebraic Jews, the rest of the people, um, because of the baggage they carry with knowing that they've been treated as second-class citizens living in Israel like this for some period of time. It's It doesn't tell us which one it is. It doesn't tell us if if there's any truth to this. We're only going to find out about the solution to keep the people from complaining. Verse 2. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God, word of God in order to wait on tables. This is this is essentially them them saying this is really worthwhile what we're doing here, but we can't do it. Like we can't this is this is a a lesser thing than for us to be teaching and and actually spending time just reading and knowing God's word. I mean, listen carefully here to these guys. They walked with Jesus. They were with Jesus. They they are 
teaching all of these people. And more than anything, they're saying we can't neglect the word of God. We can't neglect our reading of it, our, our engaging in it, and in our teaching of it. Not just teaching what they think about it, but we're talking about they are reading it. They are, are filling their minds with God's word. They had to do it and so do we. There's no point where it's okay to say, I've read the Bible. A Christian should only ever say, I am reading the Bible. Present tense from here on out for the rest of our lives. Verse three, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the, of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Hear that. Okay, here we got another one of those classes of people. We've got a Jewish convert. So Nicholas is actually a Gentile who has converted to Judaism by uh, being circumcised as an adult and following the law of Moses. Right? We have yet to, in Acts chapter 6, we have yet to have a Gentile Christian. They don't exist. Every single Christian is a Jew or a Jewish convert, but every single person, everyone up to this point has been a, a follower of God through Judaism. Now, what I like about this here with these seven guys, right, is they didn't say, just go find seven guys that can wait tables. I mean, the apostles could have said that because they're like, we don't need to be waiting tables. We need to be devoting ourselves to God's word find 10 guys with nothing better to do and have them like do, do this. That is not what they said. They said, find guys that are full of wisdom and the spirit and, and we'll anoint them to wait the tables to oversee the distribution of food. This is a really big deal because we're going to have stories about two of these guys and just the world-changing experiences they have so often in church, so often in, in, in the life of the body of Christ, we do that. We're like, just get some people who can fog a mirror and get them in there to take care of these things. And that is, is it causes so many problems. It causes so many problems. And that's down to what we would consider the, the, the lowest job, Right. Maybe the apostles considered this the lowest job on the totem pole at this time. They're saying, we don't want you to just get people that can flock a mirror. We want you to get people that are full of wisdom in the spirit. Let them do it. We want good men doing this. And that's what they do. And these men, again, they're going to, to change the region. They're going to change the world with, with their actions. I, I find the way that they selected people here. This is something that we should emulate. This is absolutely something we should emulate. There's no job so small within the church that we should ask for volunteers who can fog a mirror. Again, it's caused so many problems in the history of the church because if you're doing that, then you're going to be asking the Ananiases and Sapphiras of the church to do these things and then they kind of get in there and then they work their way through whatever system. There's always going to be a system. People don't like that, you know, well, there's institutional religion. You can't have people. You can't have two people together without having some kind of institution. It's just the nature of man. And so you're always going to have something institutional in place if you've got a lot of people. 
And we want a lot of people. We want lots of people coming to know Jesus. If you want a Christianity that's not institutional in some form or fashion, then what you want is you want the frozen chosen, the us four and no more, right? You want, you want something that's manageable without some kind of structure. Because once you get people involved and enough people, there's always going to be a structure. That's just, it's the only way we can operate. We can't live in, in anarchy, even if it's for the church. And even if it's a relatively small number of people, there's always going to be a system. It's always going to be that. And you introduce people into that system that, that shouldn't have ever been there. Even if it's the lowest point, they, they work their way up. And then you get these Ananias and Sapphiras that are just screwing up everything, screwing up everything because their ambition, their lying, their conniving, it starts to get everywhere. I've seen it so many times, so many times. People that should have never at least in their state, been offered the opportunity to serve in the capacity that they do, being offered to, to serve. And that doesn't mean that like you have to interview somebody and know every single thing about them before they can do anything. That's not what I'm talking about either. It doesn't mean that you have to have your life completely clean and you have to be just a, a perfect saint before you can even do the smallest task. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we shouldn't just say, if you can fog a mirror, but you got all sorts of other character issues and things like that going on, it's fine. Come on. It's like, that's not what we should be saying. And I see that happen so often. We should be looking for people that are full of wisdom and the spirit to do just about anything. <clears throat> Let's continue on. Verse six, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, Luke does not give us a causality for this. It doesn't say why a large number of priests came to the faith in Jesus. We do know that it would have cost them everything. It would have cost them their job. Um, if you are a priest who, does, who now believes in Jesus, you probably are not going to get to be a priest anymore, right? The high priest, who's already had these guys flogged, he's, he's probably not going to be like, oh, now you're believers in Jesus too? You don't get to come back in the temple. In fact, you're done. You're done here. Pick up your, your pay stub uh, on the way out, uh, box up your things and leave, right? You're, you're fired. So these priests, they're, they're, they're giving up a lot, they're giving up their entire way of life to follow Jesus. And again, Luke doesn't say why, but it is interesting that, that he tags this onto this story. It's something about these seven. When they anointed these seven men, something begins to explode in the life of the church. And I don't think necessarily that they meant to do this. I don't think that they, I think they really were just trying to solve this problem. But I think what Luke is showing here, what we're seeing in this story, why this story has made it, is because this act of saying, hey, we're, we need someone to do this task. And this is, a, this is just like, I need some, we need someone to feed these people and, and distribute the food. But don't just get people. Get people that are full of wisdom and, and the spirit. And something about this, this explodes. This explodes so that even priests start coming to know Jesus. Now, again, and the priests are the ones that are offering daily sacrifices in the temple. This is a big deal. This is a huge deal. It sent waves throughout the, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisee and Sadducee community, I promise. 
again, Luke puts this here on purpose. He doesn't tell us that this is why this happens, but it happens at the same time. And I think Luke is saying, hint, hint, this decision that the apostles made to anoint some people and release them is huge. It's huge. To this day, this is essentially why churches will ordain people is because there's something about this laying on of hands and sending them out. Something about that. When you are ordained, authorized, and sent out, there's actually a God-ordained power that comes with that. Let's continue on. Verse 8, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen, one of these seven guys, right now that he's been anointed as one of the seven, he starts performing signs and wonders, right? It's not just the 12 anymore. Now it's moving on to these other seven and we're going to see that this is going to start to explode. Verse nine, opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as was called Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. Now, this is interesting. This, 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 the synagogue of the freedmen, that's what they called it. And these are Hellenistic Jews. And remember, these guys in particular were, were called upon to help administer the distribution of food specifically to kind of appease the Hellenistic Jews in the church. So all of this is having to do with these people that are, are part of these Hellenistic Jewish community. And so there's a synagogue of Hellenistic Jews. And they call it the synagogue of the freedmen. Maybe it's because this is for people that have become Roman citizens. They bought their freedom, their freedom to become Roman citizens. That's a, we're, we're going to have a discussion a little bit later about exactly what that means um, in terms of what a Roman citizen, citizenship mean and, and why was that important. Paul is going to be a Roman citizen, so we'll discuss that then. But essentially, this is a synagogue of, of Hellenistic Jews. And so they have a problem with what Stephen is doing. He's one of their own, essentially. It's possible that Stephen could have continued going to the Hellenistic synagogues and trying to preach to them. And so this is, this is starting to stir up a lot of trouble. Verse 10, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom Moses handed down to us. Now, wasn't it against the law to have false witnesses? Isn't that like one of the Ten Commandments? Um, yes, and there's actually, there are actually laws in the Talmud, laws in the Jewish rabbinic tradition that make a note of this, not of this particular story, but of, of lying under oath and giving opportunities and occasions when it's okay to lie under oath. And essentially... Now, these weren't written down or codified at this point in history, but essentially later on, hundreds of years later, they're going to codify and say that it's it's okay to lie under oath as long as it gets, uh, if there's a, a Jew and a Gentile who are in court where the, the Gentile's accusing the Jew of something, it's okay for people to lie on the Jew's behalf to get him off, even if he's guilty. 
even if he's guilty, because the Gentile's a Gentile. He's reprobate. We're not going to allow that to go on. We're God's chosen people. And so, um, you know, we can lie to, so that we don't have to suffer any consequences under Gentile rulership. That literally was their thinking. And so <clears throat> there were all sorts of little caveats where they had made it okay. <clears throat> they had made it okay to lie under oath. I mean, this is one of the Ten Commandments. There couldn't be a more clear law and they've allowed themselves to break it when it suited their needs. Verse 13 again. They produce false witnesses who testify, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Verse 15. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It's a very interesting commentary. I, I kind of wonder when I read that, I wonder like who is Luke talking to right? when he, when he's interviewing people about this, was he inter was Paul or, you know, Saul at the time, was he there? Is this a firsthand account that he gets with Saul, Paul over the next several decades? Is, is this other people that he's interviewed? And how did he know that they're all looking at him thinking that his face looks like the face of an angel? Obviously he's inter he's interviewed some people. He gets some background information on this. And that's why he includes it here. I think Stephen's face looks like the face of an angel because he's about to be with them. Spoiler alert, if you're not reading ahead, if you're not reading this once a week for 10 weeks, uh, Stephen is about to be with them. For the 10-Week Bible Study, I'm your host, Darren Hibbs, and I can't wait to see you next time. Hey, thanks for tuning into the 10-Week Bible Study Podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving a review for it on your podcast app of choice? It really helps other people find out about this podcast, and my heart is for people to fall in love with God's Word. Thank you.